Chapter Fifteen of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Fifteen Woman's Love and Man's Duty. Blake hurried below as soon as we got on board, busying himself with the charts, setting our course with scrupulous care. Only too glad to be able to leave him to himself, I found work on deck, and was thus occupied when I heard the dip of oars and a cry of, "'Boat ahoy!' from aft. I hastened towards the stern to see Miss Monckton and her father coming to us in a shore-boat. They came rapidly alongside, and the general was on board almost before the boat had lost the way on her. A minute later, and before I could think or say anything, he had helped his daughter on board. Then, at a sign from him, the boat quickly made off into the gloom. "'Mr. Bovary,' it was Miss Monckton who spoke, "'would you be kind enough to tell Captain Blake that he is wanted on deck? You need not say by whom.' Her voice, always a low and sweet one, had now in it a ring of sad determination that told me for certain what I had already guessed, that, regardless of consequences, she had decided to be with Blake at the last, whether he would or no. I went below as desired, telling the skipper that he was wanted on deck, and moodily and listlessly he followed me there. I hurried forward so as not to overhear the meeting, and hung about in the conning tower till it was more than time to start on our errand. I was roused from the reverie into which I had fallen by seeing General Monckton making his way towards me. "'Look here, Mr. Bovary,' said he, bluffly enough, as became an old soldier, "'I want a few words with you. Honestly, what are your chances to-night?' I replied that we should probably succeed in sinking a large number of French and Russian ironclads, but that we ran grave risk of destruction both in entering the Solent and in getting away. "'Meaning that you will in all human probability be sunk or captured?' "'Sunk, possibly,' I answered. "'But Blake will never strike.' "'No. From what I know of him, I should say that it would be the last thing he would do.' However, that is not the chief thing I wish to say. At present Blake is doing all he can to persuade my daughter to return on shore. I did all I could to prevent her coming on board, but here we both are. Now I know my daughter well, and you, from even the little you have seen of her, can perceive well enough that she is not one easily set aside from her purpose. She is a woman." and to a woman the fate of an empire is as nothing to the safety of the man she loves. I wish to warn you accordingly. If my daughter can disable your engines, or bring about your capture in any way, she will do so without the slightest hesitation. "'But Captain Blakewood—' I began excitedly. "'Of what he might say or do, she will wreck nothing in this matter,' he interrupted. I am an old man, with but a short time to live in any case. 
but is hard to have to choose between a daughter's life and an empire's existence. And what has England done to deserve to survive as a nation? He added bitterly. Blake has wonderful luck, I said, with a hopefulness I was far from feeling. He may pull us through all right, small though the chances seem. The pitcher that goes often to the well gets broken at last, retorted the general. And though as a soldier I can't presume to give an expert opinion on a naval question, yet it seems to me that your rattlesnake has little time left to float. But, in any case, duty is duty. If Lucy will choose to court death, I cannot save her at the expense of England. Watch her, lest some misfortune befall your ship. Then he went sadly away leaving me to worry over how best to act. I knew Blake well enough to be certain that he would never let love stand before duty, but I was none the less anxious to save him from such a terrible dilemma as he might well find himself in, should Miss Monckton get an opportunity to put her supposed plans into execution. Yet what to do I could not settle. Thorn was also hanging about in the conning tower, so we consulted together, and finally decided to take turns at watching Miss Monckton, and the lot having fallen upon me, I started upon my mission of espionage. As anticipated, Blake had been quite unable to dissuade her from accompanying us, and when I came up he seemed to have given up the attempt, as they were standing near the stern in quiet conversation. Blake had introduced me to her on shore, so I went up and uttered some commonplaces, then, after a few minutes' desultory conversation, he persuaded her to go below while we got under way. His cabin had been placed at her service. "'By Jove!' said Blake to me quite cheerily. "'I'd no idea it was so late. Aren't you peckish yet? We must get dinner as we can, when we've got over the bar.' Signalling to our consorts, we began to get up anchor. Before I went to my post on the forecastle, however, I exchanged a word with the general. "'All right,' said he. "'I'll go on duty now, and see that nothing happens while you're getting ready to start. But I can't trust myself very long. It's a hard fight against a father's love.' Poor old man! He was nearly distracted at the turn of events— Indeed, but for the fact that he had been a soldier, I should have been unable to feel any confidence in him whatever. As it was, I didn't feel overmuch. We crept out of Exmouth, leaving all our colliers behind, saving the lily. Captain Higgs was so anxious to accompany us right through, and so certain that he could be useful, that Blake had agreed to allow him to come. As events turned out, it was a good thing for us that he did. Once beyond the bar, we made a straight course for Portland Bill, and Thorn going on watch, Blake and I hurried below to dinner. The meal, such as it was, was quite a merry one. We all seemed to put on gaiety which, whether assumed or not, exercised a decidedly cheering influence. Miss Monckton, who was fortunately for her a good sailor, made merry over our crockery, which was in a sadly battered condition, and no stranger seeing the meal would have guessed that we expected it to be our last. 
By and by she led the conversation round to the ship, expressing particular curiosity about the engines. "'And I suppose,' she said, after Blake had explained them to her, "'I suppose a piece of bursting shell, even a little bit, if it got among the wheels and things, would stop the ship.' He replied that of course it would, but the engine hatches being shut down, such an event was unlikely in the extreme. Whatever suspicions I may have previously had were now strengthened, and the unsuspecting Blake had given her the knowledge she required. A few minutes later we went on deck, Blake to the conning tower forward, and I nominally to inspect the torpedo tubes, but in reality to lie in wait for our fair enemy. Nothing happened, however. Miss Monckton came on deck and joined Blake in the conning tower. "'We shall have such a short time together, now, that every moment is precious to me,' I heard her say to our captain, and doubtless he was of the same opinion. Stealthily the rattlesnake and her consorts slipped through the water. Fortune was with us again in the matter of weather, for the night was thick and dark, with showers at intervals, while the sea was fairly smooth. In the gloom I could just see Miss Monckton, wrapped in Blake's overcoat, standing close to him forward, her tall figure silhouetted against the dimly white foam that shot from the rattlesnake's bow. In the faint glow thrown up by the phosphorescence I could see her light brown hair blown across her face by the wind of her onward rush, and ever and anon I could hear the soft murmur of her voice. A strange picture, truly, in the tragedy of love and war. Suddenly she disappeared. While I was yet craning my neck to see whether she had merely shifted her position, I heard a sound behind me, the sound of a hatchway being forced open by unaccustomed hands. Quick as thought, I turned and made for the engine hatches. A gleam of light shot up into the sky, lighting up Miss Monckton's face. With one hand she struggled to keep the hatch open, in the other she held a short iron bar. There was no time to speak. Rushing forward, I seized her hands and pulled her from the hatch, which fell down again with a loud crash. The bar was in my hands now, and I threw it overboard, but not without a struggle. Twice the now desperate girl hit me in the face with her ringed fingers, cutting down the side of my face. Blake sang out angrily to know what the noise meant, and as I turned to reply, Miss Monckton wrenched herself free of me and darted behind the searchlight. Fortunately no one had witnessed the encounter, and I explained to Blake that I had fallen down, getting a good telling off for my clumsiness at a time when silence was all-important. When he had gone again, I apologized as well as I could for my roughness, but she paid me little heed. The failure of her scheme seemed to have stultified Miss Monckton completely. "'Since I cannot save him, I will die by his side.' was all she said, and then went forward again, leaving me to continue my watch in silence. End of chapter.